0: Okay, we are live. Thank you for joining. Um, we do have the audio enabled for calls after the chapter reading is done. So if you could stick it out, maybe you'd like to discuss what we're, what we're talking about in the chapter. So far we have been doing these unsanctioned citizen, unsanction your mind summer 22, 2022, <laughs> summer reading series. Um, a willful blindness reading from author Sam Cooper. So I am going to go ahead and just get to it. Last night was epic. It was the longest marathon reading I have ever done in my life. So, uh, I just want to pat my own self on my back. There was one listener that I could see three total, but it was Charlie Weiser who, who stuck it out the entire hour and 54 minutes. So, Charlie Weiser at Colin, you are my hero, bro. And uh, you will not be forgotten for getting through that slog. Um, that's definitely going to be a podcast download for a road trip. Because, whoa, that was long. Alright, so here we go. We're starting tonight with chapter 16, Strike Back Hard. Here we go. In the story, I also explain the United Front's methods and ideology in detail. This was information that CSIS had been trying to raise with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government and previous federal governments. My personal protective personal protective equipment or PPE story immediately caught the attention of Beijing. Prior to January 1 January 1, 2020, very few people could have predicted PPE would become the world's hottest commodity and N95 masks would become life-saving armor. But by mid-January, astute observers in supply chain logistics noticed Beijing was scouring the globe for PPE. In February, my sources were monitoring WeChat and Chinese-language website reports that indicated major PPE ops underway in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa. It became clear that United Front Work Department, excuse me, groups in Vancouver and Toronto were international leaders in Beijing's PPE logistics. And these United Front operations were replicated worldwide from Melbourne to Tokyo to Milan to New York to London to Prague. It was all directed from Beijing and run through Chinese consulates. The actors were the same Chinese overseas businesses and community leaders that Xi Jinping used in normal times to influence politicians in the West. But from January to March, Xi's tentacles were laser-focused on N95 masks. On April 30th, my story, United Front Groups in Canada helped Beijing stockpile coronavirus safety supplies, pulled the curtain back on Xi's clandestine PPE op. In the story I also explained the United Front's methods and ideology. This was information that CSIS trying to raise with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government and previous federal governments. But Canada's intelligence on China's subtle attack was ignored by elected officials and for the first time in Canada I documented the underground ties between Vancouver's United Front leaders and the e-pirate money laundering network. I believe this is what truly enraged Beijing. The other thing that must have stung, my analysis showed the Chinese Communist Party had covered up pandemic risk while buying back PPE supplies Chinese factories had previously sold to the world. It was like the ultimate case of insider trading. Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole underlined this point in my global news story. The Communist Party of China willfully withheld information on an outbreak for at least weeks, if not months, O'Toole said. It not only gave the world less time to respond, it downplayed the potential severity of the threat. Countries did not make decisions with respect to flight bans and protecting PPE stores. And Jorge Guajardo, Mexico's former ambassador to Beijing, told me Beijing acted surreptitiously and left the world naked with no supply of PPE. So eventually Beijing profited by selling stockpiled PPE back to the world at massively inflated prices with geopolitical strings attached, Guajardo said. My story used China's own customs data to summarize the scale of the operation. In just weeks, starting January 24th, Beijing imported 2.5 billion pieces of PPE, including over 2 billion safety masks. And I used United Front Work Department reports and PPE warehousing pictures from inside China, plus WeChat texts and reports in Canadian cities to show that over 100 tons of PPE were gathered in Canada and shipped to China. I think it's safe to say Beijing's United Front never had been mobilized with such intensity in a condensed time frame. The result was a flood of concrete evidence. It seemed United Front leaders outside of China wanted to prove they had answered Xi Jinping's call. Part of this was nationalistic propaganda, but it also looked like self-interest. Most United Front's overseas leaders are businessmen who trade on their guanxi with Beijing to earn fortunes. I eventually found that Vancouver tycoons airlifted PPE around the world. Meilin Chen, the Guangdong high roller identified in BC Lottery Corp money laundering records, had flown his private jet to Pao, Pao New Guinea, to deliver PPE in June of 2020. Chen had been a member of the Chinese People's Political Consultative Congress, a United Front organ. He also connected to a high-level River Rock Casino employee deregistered after a money-laundering investigation in late 2017. Amidst all the evidence sources that documented trailer loads of PPE delivered to international airports, one report stood out with a smoking gun. End-to-end proof of United Front transactions. The February 2 report from Xinhua, China's state news agency, focused on overseas Chinese groups from Fujian and the United Front espionage hotbed where Lai... Chen Qing and Xi Jinping launched their respective careers. The menacing ap- epidemic came suddenly, but majestic strength comes from frontline medical staff, party members, and cadres from the people, and from Fujian Chinese and overseas Chinese, an English-language translation of the Xinhua story. Fujians from dozens of countries on five continents joined this invisible battle, They traveled day and night and raced against time to send back batches of scarce supplies to the motherland. The report featured detailed PPE case studies from Japan, United States, and Canada, but the Toronto Fuqing Chamber of Commerce case study was an outlier, with its direct reference to the United Front Works Department's command and control of operations in Canada. Excuse me. It was also meaningful to me that Xinhua focused on the Toronto Fujian Group because I knew this network was important to CSIS. In 2019, its leaders had attended an anti-Hong Kong democracy rally in Markham, Ontario. Photos of the pro-Beijing rally show the elite of Toronto's United Front Work Department men who are well-connected to Beijing, according to evidence compiled by Michael Juno Katsuya. The Xinhua story said a Toronto Fuking chamber leader traveled to China in January. And when he recognized the severity of the epidemic in Wuhan, he immediately flew back to Toronto. According to Xinhua, he raced from the airport in a snowstorm and issued urgent orders, sending 200 Fuking chamber members racing around Ontario, buying PPE. And before t- February two. Many tons of PPE was transferred by Chinese state airlines to receivers that worked with the United Front Work Department of Fushan, Fujian sorry, and Customs in Fujian to warehouse the medical supplies from Canada. That sentence was all the evidence I needed. Consider the source. Clive Hamilton, author of Hidden Hand, exposing how the Chinese Communist Party is reshaping the world, has mapped the United Front structure. A hierarchy chart published in Hidden Hand shows that Xinhua is just a few steps below the Politburo. And Xinhua report established that Beijing used United Front bosses in China, Chinese state owned airlines, and United Front groups worldwide to vacuum most of the world's PPE in January before the other governments knew what hit them. But I need to make some important distinctions because this is an incredibly complex set of circumstances. There was a big humanitarian element involved in sending PPE to China. Community and government leaders in many countries worked together to answer China's need. Many Chinese Canadians sent care packages of PPE to family members, and at the time... Most of the world apparently believed the coronavirus could be contained in China, so it made sense to send medical supplies where the material was needed. This was all good. What is wrong, though, is that Xi Jinping's regime was covering up the outbreak and its severity, leaving the rest of the world in the dark. And in 2021, through my Canadian military and intelligence sources, I have learned more about the outbreak in Wuhan. The evidence dovetails with an increasing number of statements from U.S. intelligence and disease control officials, asserting that a disease matching the nature of the coronavirus was found to be spreading in Wuhan as early as October 2019. About 10,000 soldiers were at the World Military Games in Wuhan in October, and I learned from soldiers at the Games that about one quarter of Canada's team became so severely sick in late October And they flew back to Canada under quarantine. These are extremely fit people. For such a large number of athletes to become sick at once is odd, to say the least. And there are open source records and accounts from my military and intelligence sources indicating that Wuhan was significantly depopulated during the military games. And the Chinese state was engaged in strange behaviors. I don't... I'm not sure how to explain this, Canadian soldier wrote to me. The soldier provided a January 22, 2020 letter from the Canadian Army's Surgeon General regarding reports of sickness among athletes at the Games, which concluded individual risk of having been exposed to 2019 NCOV during temporary duty in Wuhan is negligible. However, A number of the Canadian soldiers don't believe that assessment. Multiple intelligence sources informed me. They believe that they were infected with the coronavirus in Wuhan. Empty highways, no construction workers, thousands of empty high-rise apartments, all empty, the Canadian soldier wrote to me. Yes, there were a few people you would see, but this was a rarity. The explanation given by the staff at the World Military Games was that the CCP ordered everyone in Wuhan to leave the city to make room for the athletes. Hmm. The soldier informed me his superiors decided to isolate all the sick in the back of the service flight on the way back. People were all kinds of sick. Myself, I had some weird symptoms and some lung difficulties a while there. Uh, It wasn't until the 12th or 13th of November that I started to really get feverish and terrible coughing fits. Wow, this was in Canada? So for the 15th onward, I was bedridden for about 10 days. I've never been that sick before. So my information from Canadian intelligence is some have judged it is highly likely the coronavirus was spreading in Wuhan during the military games and that the athletes from a number of nations brought the coronavirus home. Obviously, international experts are trying to confirm this information while facing roadblocks from Xi's regime. And the case hasn't been proven, but national security experts in the United States and Canada increasingly believe the coronavirus was racing through Wuhan in October 2019. China knew a dangerous virus was emerging, and Xi's regime covered it up and collected the world's supply of PPE as the danger mounted in early 2020. Back to Canada, the Xinhua report proved how important Fujian United Front networks in Ontario were as in China's international PPE ops. And I had equally powerful evidence in Vancouver provided by United Front websites. One of the reports said on January 23rd, Yang Tao Chen, the chairman, pardon me, of Vancouver's controlling level United Front group was ordered by Chinese consulate to gather PPE desperately needed in Wuhan. WeChat group's Photos provided supporting evidence. One WeChat photo showed Yang Tao Chen standing with Chinese consulate top overseas Chinese affairs, United Front official, and consul general Tong Ling's deputy. Both men are involved in tactical roles for the Chinese consulate, according to my photo evidence. Yang Tao Chen, eventual successor, a man also seen standing at Justin Trudeau's elbow in one of my key united front cash for access photos was with Chen and the consulate bosses in the PPE warehousing busy uh, photo sorry another report said Yang Tao Chen worked with the Canada Chao Shan Association a united front group connected to the Guangdong Overseas Chinese Federation this was another huge piece of evidence because the Guangdong Federation had associations in 131 countries. And its leaders in Vancouver are well known to CSIS agents in BC, intelligence sources informed me. An official United Front report in China said that Franco Fang, a prominent Guangdong Federation leader in Vancouver, had facilitated transnational PPE deliveries into China from Vancouver. And he reported to his bosses in China that local communities actively cooperate with the embassies and consulates to contact all community overseas Chinese groups to prepare various medical supplies. This was another smoking gun quote directly from an official source in China. I'll boil down what this all means in very simple terms. The Canada chao Shan Association had a very important role in Xi Jinping's PPE collection the ops and after China had the coronavirus under control within its borders the Chao Association was shipping PPE back to Chinese communities worldwide and I knew this from Alex Jawski that Wang Xiangmo the Australian United Front Leader and whale gambler was directly connected to Guangdong United Front Leaders in Vancouver and the Chao Shan Association had been on my radar since late 2017 because of its direct connection to e-pirate targets. Thanks to the Panama Papers leak, I had the names and the addresses of 14 Chaoshan directors. Most of them listed Vancouver addresses and some listed addresses in China. One of the Chaoshan directors, a man named Shun Chuang, Chuang. sorry, listed in Panama Papers, addresses that was of incredible importance in my Vancouver model investigations. In Vancouver real estate terms, I saw Shun Chu Wang's property as a code-breaking tool. You have to visualize the East Vancouver property and what lies behind it. A sprawling constellation of BC land titles, crudely scribbled promissory notes, in 23 B.C. Supreme Court real estate money laundering cases that show fentanyl-soaked tentacles stretching from Vancouver to Calgary to Toronto to Macau to mainland China. Shun Chuang's home is not distinctive in appearance. He owns a similar one a few doors away on Euclid Avenue. They are strategically located... Vancouver's hotbed of illegal casinos on Kingsway Avenue is two minutes away. And I found that Chun Chuang was sentenced for narcotics production in 2003 and handed a 10-year firearms prohibition. I also found his associates were named in a global smuggling ring linked to China, Hong Kong, and Richmond. The connections go on and on. But this is the most important one. I connected Shun Chuang and another owner on the Euclid Avenue Panama Papers address, Leah Hua Chen, to a property on Burris Street in Burnaby. I found both men were plaintiffs in a BC Supreme Court real estate lending case. That case involved a number of e-pirate loan sharks and a River Rock Casino VIP. Stay with me here. We're going down this rabbit hole because... Shun Chuang is the director of a Panama Papers entity that is central to Xi Jinping's plans. I found a third man on the land title of the Burris Street property, Mr. Huang, was named along with Paul King and BC Lottery Corp loan sharking bands. And this short list of names on this Lottery Corp document is extremely important because the loan sharking record names a shipbuilder from China named Guo Tashi and she is called RCMP suspect 1 in another document that calls Tiger Yuan suspect 2 and Paul King Jin suspect 22 yet another lottery court record names Guo Tashi as it's Tashi sorry as one of the 36 River Rock Casino whales funded by Silver International and Paul King Jin and RCMP intelligence sources inform me that Guo Taishi ran an illegal casino in a massive Richmond, Richmond Farmland mansion that dwarfed similar Richmond properties run by Paul King Jin. Now back to Mr. Wang and Shun Chuang and their Burris Street property. This home and its owners are connected to fentanyl trafficking. Mr. Huang and Paul King Jin are among the 10 private lenders involved in the single most important BC Supreme Court case for my Vancouver model investigation. This was the case where Jin loaned $8 million to Jia Guigo, Gao, sorry, the Macau casino whale secured against Gao's West Vancouver mansion. <sighs> Mr. Huang lent Gao $3.2 million. And the two suspects busted in a Vancouver police fentanyl trafficking investigation in 2016, WZ and YZ, loaned Gao $7 million. The 10 private lenders claimed to have loaned a total of $28.8 million to Gao. And when I showed these names to one of Canada's most knowledgeable Asian or organized crime investors, investigators, he confirmed that these are Canada's fentanyl kingpins. These private lenders connected to Chun Chuang and are the e-pirate network. Sorry. So let's boil all this down way to its essence. My investigation, starting with one Panama Papers address in East Vancouver, had connected Canada Chao Shan director Chun Chuang to the fentanyl kingpins. The suspects in Chun Chuang and BC's land title and real estate and casino lending records were allegedly running fentanyl trafficking and underground banking operations in Richmond, BC, and mainland China. And Canada Chao Shan's director directors were directly connected to the United Front Work Department and the Chinese Communist Party. The Guangdong United Front officials in Vancouver were pivotal in Beijing's PPE operations. My dossier of photo evidence shows these are men who sit in Beijing and take instructions from Xi Jinping, among hundreds of others, hundreds of the most important overseas Chinese affairs leaders in Chinese diaspora communities worldwide. And these United Front leaders are not just rubbing shoulders socially with e-pirate targets and pictures. No, no. They are directly connected with smoking gun corporate documentation, to underground financing, and organized crime targets. This is what it all means. In one sentence, my PPE story demonstrated the connection between the fentanyl kingpins of Canada and the Chinese Communist Party, and Beijing struck back immediately. Dot, dot, dot. On May 2, a petition demanding the retraction of my United Front PPE story started circulating on WeChat groups across Canada. I had never encountered the petition writer, but I had a few clues about her motivations. During the fall of 2019 Canada federal election, Ottawa University professor had spoken out against Canadian politicians voicing support for the Hong Kong democracy movement. My colleague, Jeremy Natal, a Toronto Star investigative reporter with strong connections in the Chinese-Canadian community, spotted the petition first. I'm not going to share this nonsense, Natal wrote on Twitter, but it's a typical tactic from the Chinese Communist Party to try to shut Canadians up when they criticize the regime in Beijing. The petition, and a deluge of similar statements in Chinese language media, claimed my story had lumped all Chinese Canadians into United Front PPE mask operation, and this was racist. But Natal was right. The petition was nonsense. My story was based on facts, evidence, and direct quotes from official Chinese sources. The story explained that Beijing is trying to control and use all Chinese immigrants. This has been extensively supported by numerous intelligence reports, academic papers, and books like Claws of the Panda and Hidden Hand. But I had to respond to politically motivated attacks on my story. It wasn't hard to identify the hand of Beijing. Fortunately, I had lots of assistance from sources in the Chinese and Hong Kong Canadian communities, and my sources found the petition and many derivative media posts mirrored statements coming from China's government. It was so elegantly logical, a perfect circle of United Front activity The media commentaries and the Chinese government statements denouncing my story were published by the same websites that China used in February and March 2020 to publicize the United Front PPE operations in Canada. These were, of course, the very same media websites that I had monitored to document United Front meetings involving e-pirate money laundering suspects. The same sites that showed RCMP suspects frequently meeting with Chinese consulate officials... And Canadian politicians. As these waves of media disinformation washed over me day after day in May of 2020, one of my sources, a Canadian-Chinese academic, monitored the outlets involved. My source assessed that Beijing was behind these attacks. The source is studying Chinese Communist Party interference in Canadian media and asked to remain anonymous in order to avoid interference. The situation was surreal, I was losing sleep. I spent my nights and weekends talking to sources and intelligence and law enforcement. These experts came to the same conclusion as the Chinese-Canadian academic. As reporters, we never want to become part of the story. But I couldn't avoid it. I had poked at Beijing's PPE networks and exposed deep organized crime connections. Now, the communications section of this coiled snake was writhing and striking back. In fact, strike back hard was the exact phrase used by a key figure. Aside from his media gig, this broadcaster, Omni TV columnist Ding Guo, leads a society active in lobbying Canadian politicians on issues that align with Beijing's interest in China and Canada. Sorry. Much like many of Ding Guo's columns. As an example of the society's activity, one source forwarded screen captures from Dinguo's May 2020 Zoom chat with a pro-Beijing Canadian senator, in which the senator presented a not for circulation insider's analysis of the Canadian government's response to COVID-19 health crisis and the politics of COVID-19. And I had been researching Dinguo's, Dinguo's association since 2019. My documents suggested links from Dingwo to Burnaby politician James Wang to Hongwei Hong Kevin Soon, the Richmond crowdfunding developer. Website records showed that Dingwo and James Wang sat on the board of a Jilin business group run by Hongwei Soon. But a picture really is sometimes worth a few thousand words. And for me, one photo really demonstrated the intimacy of this trio. It was taken on a warm summer day. It showed Dinguo and James Wang, Wang, celebrating Kevin Soon's birthday party. They were in the yard of a Richmond hacienda, a property listed in BC lottery corp emails regarding illegal casino investigations. They stood shoulder to shoulder to shoulder with Kevin Soon and a handful of elite BC United front figures. Holding long knives over a nicely charred barbecued hog. This group included a man, Mike Photo Collection shows, who sat in places of honor besides China's Consul General Tong Xiaoling and Rong Xiang Yuan at important Chinese cultural events in Burnaby. And beside Kevin Sun was Ms. Zi, a pharmaceutical business owner in China and a United Front leader in Vancouver. The photo was reminiscent of another taken at high-end Chinese restaurant in late 2019, where Ding Guo and Rongqiang Yuan and Mizzi dined with a famous Chinese actor who also appeared on Ding Guo's, Ding Guo's TV show. So I could see the Guanxi bonding this little network, and their plotting was revealed May 10th. In a Zoom group meeting, it was set up by a Richmond crowdfunding realtor well-connected to United Front leaders. About 50 virtual attendees hatched the idea of crowdfunding a lawsuit against me by soliciting donations from Chinese diaspora communities across Canada. Here was another absurd irony. In 2015, I started my journey into the Vancouver model, writing about Kevin Sun and his murky network of crowdfunding fundi- realtors. Now the very same crowdfunding network was crowdfunding to deter my digging into their crowdfunding. After the Zoom meeting on May 10th, magically, Dinguo's TV producer emailed me on May 11th. We heard that some people from the Chinese community are planning to file a lawsuit. And on May 14th, members from WeChat and Zoom groups registered to a society called Mlara designed to attack my reporting. I won't name three front men. Two were Vancouver's realtors, whose boss is identified as a prominent United Front leader who attends meetings in Beijing. His real estate company has corporate links to Rongchang Yuan, according to my intelligence sources. So that tells me enough about M. Lara. But the evidence got more blatant. One M. Lara director had a direct business relationship with Chinese with the Chinese state. This real estate agent's shipping company was used in April 2020 to ship boxes of PPE for Vancouver Chinese consulate. Meanwhile, as the legal plotting brewed in WeChat discussions, Ding Guo used his Mandarin language show to disseminate M Lara's disinformation, but he concealed his per- personal interest He led his audience to the assumption that he was offering objective opinions about MLR's action, my Chinese Canadian academic source concluded. This was noted in a lahu.ca report on the first Zoom meeting. Ding Guo suggested launching a lawsuit and he thinks Chinese Canadians should, in his words, strike back hard. And I believe that that was also the Chinese government's position. I asked Ding Guo to comment, but he didn't respond to my messages. And Ding Guo's corporate managers told me they found nothing wrong with his actions. Meanwhile, many people approached me with the same message. Felt like wrestling an octopus. The tentacles seemed to be guiding me to a place where the struggle would end. If only I would apologize and retract the facts. And that wasn't going to happen. But I took some grim humor from watching the plot unfold. The participants weren't fooling anyone who was watching closely. These people are either directly related to the United Front Work Group Department of China or puppets. A source inside their WeChat groups wrote to me. The source asked to remain anonymous for fear their relatives in China would be targeted. They're coming up with a GoFundMe link for collecting donations for a... Lawsuit together with racial attack claims, source said. They want to make it an influential Chinese group to lobby and pressure governments, politicians, reporters, institutions, and incite national sentiment among Chinese Canadians. They want to promote lawsuits against anyone who dares criticize China. They also want to elect more puppets into Canadian governments. I knew the legal threat against me was frivolous, but I became more concerned when my my sources captured WeChat text showing a ledger of donations for planned lawsuits against me. The record showed legal advice from a Richmond lawyer well-known to BC Law Society misconduct and casino money laundering investigations. It was Paul King Jin's real estate lawyer, Hong Guo. Hongguo was invited to give a talk about certain legal matters in the lahu.ca WeChat group. I'm a part of my academic source, wrote to me. And the ledger connected to a Hongguo WeChat group showed that Xiao Kui Wei donated $1,000. I recognize the name of Paul Kin Jin's wife, Xiao Kui Wei, was. Accused in the e-pirate probe of drug trafficking, money laundering, and tax evasion, found the same name on corporate records for Warrior Fighting Dream and Water Cube, along with directors in Beijing, Harbin, and Shangdong. I just have to stop and breathe a minute. Ah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the ledger shows that Han herself donated five hundred dollars. And the ledger showed me that Kwok Chung Tam, the name of a man believed by B.C. Lottery Corp investigators to be superior to Paul King Jin, put up a mere $100. Kwok Chung Tam was known to be a spendthrift throw. So I knew a lot about crowdfunders, all due to support from Chinese-Canadian sources monitoring WeChat to help me. Regardless, I wasn't writing about the plotting. And then, on May 25th, Bob Mackin published a fascinating report. He had discovered a WeChat group post that tied M. Lara to Vancouver Liberal MP Joyce Murray. A post on the Liberal Minister of Digital Governments group on China State's censored social media platform is promoting a lawsuit against an investigative journalist who cast a critical eye on China's hoarding of medical suppliers during the coronavirus outbreak, Macken's story for the Breakers said. Maria Zhu, a member of the Vancouver Liberal MP Joyce Murray WeChat group, posted a notice about MLRA and a link to the website where it is soliciting donations. Zhu was also, sorry, Shu, was also a participant, In a May 19th, Zoom meeting hosted to explore a class-action lawsuit against Cooper. The Toronto Star and Globe Mail and CBC quickly followed Bob Macken's story. The situation that had been simmering for weeks boiled over Tuesday after Vancouver news site The Breaker published a report saying federal liberal MP Joyce Murray had promoted a lawsuit against global news. Jeremy Natal reported for the star and Natal revealed details of M. Laura's zoom meetings during the May 10th meeting. Several ideas were discussed about how to approach Cooper's reporting. Among the suggestions made was to investigate Cooper himself to see if he had ever committed any illegal acts or if he was behind on his income taxes in a bid to hurt his reputation, Natal reported. Another course of action suggested was to have many people personally file small claims lawsuits against Cooper at the same time. It was suggested that this could exhaust him. The Conservative Party jumped on the story and attacked the Liberals and Murray in parliamentary debates. Murray said the views expressed in the WeChat group run through her office do not necessarily reflect her positions. And Prime Minister Trudeau said, using WeChat to fund lawsuits against Canadian journalism is unacceptable. The WeChat group was not severed from Murray's office, though. It's obviously an important arm for the liberals into the mainland Chinese diaspora and a tool to fundraise and mobilize votes. But as Alex Joski has reported, WeChat is a vector of Chinese Communist Party influence in the West. So... The concern in Canada is obvious to me. Murray is a member of Canada's federal government. It's tied up with United Front actors, whether she realizes it or not. And various WeChat groups, networks, interwoven through community leaders like the Richmond lawyer Hong Guo and her associate Maria Xu, tried to leverage Murray's credibility and efforts to silence reporting critical of Beijing. And it gets a lot darker considering some of the donor names I found recorded on a ledger posted on Hongguo's WeChat group. As I tried to get my head around all of this, I was reminded of Cameron Ortis' compromise nodes thesis. WeChat, a Chinese Communist Party-controlled communications network, is a giant node. It has the capacity to compromise everything it touches in Canadian cyberspace. So here was another perfect irony. WeChat had evidently co- comprised the office of Joyce Murray, the Liberal Minister of Digital Government. It had latched onto an appendage of Canada's government to attack Canada's free press. This is an attack on democracy. One person told me during this media firestorm that I was experiencing something like psychological warfare, and it was exhausting. My purpose in relating the experience isn't to pose as a victim. Rather, it's to demonstrate how the United Front works. As an expert in Washington once explained to me, it is a Leninist political war tool. The United Front seeks to turn friends of Beijing against the Chinese Communist Party's enemies. United Front leaders in British Columbia lobbied every level of Canadian government seeking allies to attack my PPE story. There were plenty of Zoom meetings and probably many behind-the-scenes conversations I'm aware of. The question is, why did the United Front feel confident that elected Canadian officials would take their side against Canadian journalism? The answer, I suppose, is financial leverage. Political donations win political influence. Whatever the case, my investigations into organized crime and the United Front continued and researchers continued to scour Chinese state websites and forward me PPE operation evidence. This is my best example. When we published the PPE story on April 30th, I demonstrated ties between the ePirate network and the controlling level United Front Group in Richmond that worked with overseas affairs leaders in the Vancouver Chinese consulate to ship pallets of PPE back to China. At the time though I I didn't demonstrate that criminal funds were used. But in November of 2020, a Mandarin language researcher texted me. He shared an official Chinese state report filed in February of 2020 by the Shandong Overseas Chinese, Chinese Assembly Hall that said another batch of donated goods had arrived from the Canada Shandong Chinese Business Association. The report titled, Battle Against the Epidemic said Mr. Paul King Jin of the Canada World Champion Club enthusiastically donated CAD, or C-A-D $20,000 Canadian, I think. So, the self-admitted loan shark, a man convicted of sexual exploitation an alleged fentanyl kingpin who was tight with People's Liberation Army heavyweights had paid $20,000 to buy scarce PPE in Canada for shipment to China for the benefit of the motherland. Paul King Jin's wealth comes from drug trafficking, illegal casino operations, loan sharking, human trafficking, prostitution, and transnational money laundering, police say. I'm suggesting that organized crime proceeds from Jin's network could have been funded, could have funded, some of Beijing's PPE operations in Canada. And this PPE might have saved some lives in Canadian nursing homes. Of course, through his lawyers, Jin denies the allegations. He is a legitimate businessman offering boxing lessons to children. There's a mountain of evidence against him though. The evidence says that he's a violent, money laundering criminal that ties to the Chinese Communist Party. So, the thought that stays with me, like an alarm ringing louder all the time, like the sound of an echo in reverse, is the pandemic was a crucible for Beijing's amoral methodologies. We saw the United Front's machinery like never before, in a compressed time frame with desperate consequences. For me, in a microcosm, Paul King Jin's United Front PPE contribution shows the Chinese Communist Party's willingness to use any means to survive. And that is the end of the chapter. It's a short one tonight, kids, only 43 minutes long. So uh, if anyone would like to call in and discuss the allegations of PPP, PPE, (laughs) how many P's are in PPE? There are only two, not three. So um, if anybody would like to call in, I will take callers. Going once, going twice, no sale. Okay, we're going to end it there. And tomorrow we will broadcast at 7.20 p.m. Friday night, loyally, right here on callin.com. And uh, we'll be there with chapter 17 afterward, infinite connectivity. Thank you for joining us here at the Unsanctioned Citizen. Come on, soundboard.